Today's TripCast is brought to you by Texas Association of Community Colleges. Texas Community Colleges are the state's economic engine for recovery. Our colleges provide credentials that meet regional and local workforce demands. Visit TACC.org. And Texas Biomed pioneers and shares scientific breakthroughs that protect our communities. Health starts with science. Health starts at Texas Biomed. Visit txbiomed.org for more. Hey, TripCast listeners, we have a favor to ask. Would you go to texastribune.org slash survey to take a five-minute listener survey? Texas Tribune journalists want to know what you think of our podcasts. Again, that survey is at texastribune.org slash survey, all one word. We appreciate your feedback. Welcome to the Texas Tribune TribCast for August 4th, 2023. My name is Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor of News for the Tribune. And this week we are going to talk about Texas A&M University. The school has been thrown into turmoil the past month due to two cases in which questions were raised about academic freedom and the influence of politics and personnel decisions at the school. The first one kind of broke out into the news on July 11th when Kathleen McElroy, a former editor of the New York Times, at the New York Times and former director of the UT Austin Journalism Program, who had been announced, you know, weeks earlier to much celebration to be leading the revived journalism program at A&M, told one of our guests today, Kate McGee, that she would no longer be joining her alma mater. The reason was that A&M had essentially walked back her offer of a tenured position because of, as she was told, DEI hysteria. It seemed that some people in power had raised concerns about McElroy, a black woman, leading the program due to her association with the New York Times and her work to support students and journalists of color. Uh, You know, news of this development sparked outrage. The president at A&M eventually resigned, Kathy Banks. But two weeks after that story came out, Kate and her colleague James Bettergon reported on the case of Joy Alonzo, another A&M professor, this one in the School of Health who had been placed on paid administrative leave after she was accused of criticizing Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick in a lecture at the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston. She was censured by UTMB, but later allowed to return to her job at A&M, but only after a warning about, you know, what to be careful about what she said in lectures. Um, Before we uh, announce the guests, I should probably make my own little disclosure here, which is that I am a 2008 graduate of Texas A&M, Uh, Some would say I'm an obnoxiously loud Aggie football fan. I'm not sure if that's a fair uh, classification, though. I also served on the committee that explored bringing back journalism to Texas A&M. I've met Kathleen McElroy several times through, you know, the small Aggie journalism circles, including one time 16 years ago when she gave 22-year-old me a tour of the New York Times building. Uh, But let's introduce our guests. First of all, uh, Kate McGee. Hey, Kate. Um, Did you know that I went to A&M? I had an inkling, um, but I had not. Re- I wasn't really completely sure. Yeah. Okay. Very good. And uh, Kate, of course, covers higher education for the Tribune, and uh, James Berrigan, who covers politics. Hey, James. <laughs> hey, Matthew. All right. So, let's talk about what happened in this develop these two stories this week. Um, this has been in the news for a couple weeks. 
but yesterday on Thursday, A&M put out kind of reports uh, detailing what they found when they investigated these cases, um, both the Alonzo case and the McElroy case. Kate, you have a story on this. Can you kind of tell us the, the top lines of what they found in that investigation? Sure. So it was a huge report. I mean, it was a five page kind of summary bulleting exactly what they determined to have happened based on interviews with everyone involved. And then along with that report came about 500 pages plus of emails and text messages um, internally from boards of regent, board of regents members and between uh, former A&M president Kathy Banks and some of the other kind of uh, department uh, level um, employees discussing all this hire and kind of detailing the behind the scenes negotiations of what had happened um, to ultimately lead McElroy to decide not to come and take this position. Um, the report confirmed that the regents, multiple regents, had voiced concerns about McElroy's kind of perceived left-leaning um, credentials, that she came from the New York Times, that she had come from UT Austin, and that um, their idea or their perception was that this new journalism program was supposed to be bringing more conservative voices into journalism and that this hire was going to make it more difficult to do that. Um, the text messages also uh, confirmed that President Banks or former President Banks was very heavily involved in these negotiations, even though she had told the faculty Senate that she had no idea that the offer letters um, and the, the kind of the negotiations with McElroy had been watered down since the original letter um, was signed by McElroy in mid-June. Um, the text messages show that she was, you know, having lots of back and forth about the different changes that AM was proposing to McElroy. And there was some really kind of ugly comments about McElroy uh, between her and the interim dean of the College of Arts and Sciences, uh, who also resigned from that post, Jose Bermudez. Um, and then ultimately, the other big news was that the school settled with McElroy over all of this, and she walked away with a million dollars from the university and is now going to be able to stay in Austin, and she will be you know, still teaching at UT Austin this fall. James, they also looked into the Joy Alonzo case. Do you want to give us a recap of what happened there? Yeah, well, essentially, it's a case of political interference in <clears throat> in academics work and what they can or can't say while um, giving a lecture on their own topic of expertise. Uh, what happened with Professor Joy Alonzo, a respected opioids expert in the state, um, is that in March she gave a guest lecture at UTMB in Galveston uh, where she talked about the opioid epidemic. Um, you know, we were not at the lecture, obviously, and there's no recording of it, uh, but Kate um, got <clears throat> slides of her PowerPoint presentation. So we saw that it was about the opioid epidemic, um, how to administer naloxone to, to save lives um, and policies that may help in the opioid epidemic. Um, and everything seemed to be going gravy. Um, she'd done this talk uh, several years in a row at UTMB. She's given this talk, um, she said thousands of times. Um, but then to her surprise, when she got home back to College Station, 
Um, she uh, had phone calls and emails saying, hey, we need to get in touch with you. There's been a problem. There's been an issue. And, um, and she was put on administrative leave. Now, our reporting found that uh, uh, Land Commissioner Don Buckingham's daughter is a first-year medical student at UTMB and that she attended the lecture. After that, uh, Don Buckingham called uh, UT, I'm sorry, A&M University System Chancellor John Sharp, um, as well as, um, I'm sorry, uh, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick and the University Systems Government Relations people. And then Dan Patrick got in touch with John Sharp about this comment. And, um, you know, just a few hours later, Joey Alonzo was placed on administrative leave. It was a whole fiasco because nobody would tell us exactly what the comment was. Um, but it eventually came out, or Don Buckingham eventually confirmed all our reporting saying basically that the alleged comment was that, you know, the lieutenant governor, uh, that Professor Alonzo had said something about the lieutenant governor um, saying that, you know, kids deserve to die who die in uh, opioid overdoses. Um, the investigation uh, into Alonzo, she was cleared. Um, there's been a review now of the investigation after our reporting. And again, she was cleared. There's no basis. There's no substantiation that she made a comment like that. Um, but it was concerning just coming off, the, you know, the, re the revelations that we made in our story were concerning just on top of the previous story that Kate had also reported um, on Kathleen McElroy. And it's been, I don't know, it's been a full month of turmoil, I think, over there um, and difficult times. And I think difficult times still to continue because the Faculty Senate is still looking into Joy Alonzo's case and whether protocol and policies were followed about how to place someone on administrative leave. Yeah, I mean, Kate, it seems like the reaction to both of those stories among faculty on UT has been a lot of concern about, you know, the political influence on who is hired at A&M and what the people at A&M are allowed to say. It is interesting to see the university come out yesterday and essentially apologize and acknowledge that they, you know, the, the quote unquote mistakes were made statement. Um, related to Kathleen McElroy, but be much more, I think, defensive and, and try to argue that they didn't do anything wrong in the Alonzo case. What's the distinction they're making there? I think that, I mean, the way that, especially, you know, today, um, John Sharp uh, put out a, an op-ed in a couple of newspapers kind of also defending um, the way in which this was handled and um, really putting the the blame on this UTMB censure email that was put out saying like, you know, when you get, when you see an email like that and when you get, you know, as he characterizes it, like a non-threatening call from the Lieutenant Governor, of course you need to check out um, exactly, you know, what went down here. Um, I think the concern from the faculty has been the speed in which this all happened and the way in which it was a little bit as if um, Alonzo was really put on the defensive to prove her innocence rather than um, trying to confirm if there was any basis for the allegation to begin with. Um, I think the McElroy situation, you know, it could be a matter of there were just very, I mean, the, the text messages were so blatantly like clear that there had been some and that banks had lied um, and to the faculty Senate that it was harder to a harder situation to potentially defend. Um, but I think it's a matter of perspective of where you 
you maybe sit in the Alonzo case and how much, you know, a phone call from the lieutenant governor might appear to be um, like influencing, influencing someone's decisions and the kind of chilling effect that, you know, a, an, an innocuous call from the lieutenant governor to Sharp has much more meaning to a faculty member um, who is hearing that the lieutenant governor is concerned about what they're saying. Yeah, and I mean, this is this is their spin on it. Obviously, they're saying, "Well, it's just just a you know, we get these calls all the time. We had to check it out." Um, but I mean, I trust our readers to to you know look at the story um, and make sense of it, and look at the timeline and and just figure out that their timeline does not make sense. They're trying to say that you know they did this because of the UTMB censure. But if you look at our original story, you know, the lieutenant governor and his team were talking to Chancellor Sharp in the system, like two hours after the lecture and two hours, at least two hours before the UTMB censor came out. Like they are trying to spin it every which way they can to say, well, what else did you want us to do? This was, this was, you know, there's, there's UTMB is making a serious allegation. But if you look at the timeline that we've clearly laid out uh, and, and they repeated in, in their uh, memos of the review, that timeline that it doesn't add up. It doesn't add up that the censor is what set this thing off. And it's, it's clear that, there was a chain of phone calls and text messages that began with Don Buckingham um, and that, you know, maybe it was a, a minute phone, long phone call with Dan Patrick. Um, but that doesn't matter if my boss that pays me my salary and funds my programs is calling me and complaining that somebody is saying something mean about him. Um, and, then you're, and then, then you're in the middle of negotiations in the legislature over how much money you're going to get from that boss to fund your programs right. and like debating different legislation that, you know, is going to have a direct impact on your faculty right. and how your universities work. Um, right. And then you turn around, you turn around and, and say, hey, let's look into this. Um, you know, I, I think that's pretty clear you know, political interference and they could spin it which whichever way they want. But and I think we should talk about what Kate is talking about, which is that, you know, Sharp and the system are dealing with massive amounts of pressure at that point in March when 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 this all goes down. There's the DEI push, there's tenure push, uh, which they ultimately just adopt what what A&M does. So we can talk about that. But I think like our readers are smart enough and any reader really just look at the story like they are going to try to spin it every which way they can. But the timeline is pretty clear. And, you know, I think the fact that the way the complaint went down, I mean, one of our issues as reporting the story is like we couldn't even figure out what the complaint was or who made a complaint. Like there, to our knowledge, there isn't like an official like paper complaint. Like what sets this thing off is the Dan Patrick phone call to Sharp, who then, you know, now he's talking about, you know, not, then the staffer went to banks, but there's a clear connection here between Sharp getting that phone call and then Sharp telling his team to go to banks and then banks now is what they're saying. Uh, then they, they start the investigation. Like it's, it's pretty clear here. And I don't, I don't know what kind of yarn they're trying to spin over there. Well, also, I mean, in one more little connection there that you mentioned in your original story is the text message from Sharp to Dan Patrick, the, you know, the day of this saying essentially the professor has been put on administrative leave pending her possible firing should be done at the end of the week. She was, of course, not fired. And you have A&M essentially saying here, yeah, we looked into it. She didn't say anything bad. Um, and she, you know, was allowed to return to her job. There's nothing to see here. You know, one question that, that I would ask of them is, what if they had found that she had directly criticized Dan Patrick? What do you do then? I mean, 
the fact that you're investigating would suggest that there's some reason to believe that you know there there is some kind of possible fireable offense of saying something bad about the lieutenant governor in a in, in a lecture and and that in and of itself raises questions of academic freedom and, and the ability to kind of speak your mind and give your opinion as a as a as a professor, someone who studies this issue. Well, and the fact that the way they that the chancellor worded that text message, like that last part too, like about regarding firing her, like why you know it just seems to like just jump the gun all the way. You know, perhaps they had, you know that he says it's an innocuous short phone call. But then we're talking about firing her in this text message. So was that something that that was implied in the phone call or why is he bringing it up? Like it does seem to like jump the gun. And if if I'm the faculty, I would be very upset and I understand why they are concerned. I mean, it just seems to be jumping the gun. And I I don't I'm no HR expert, but it just seems to not the appropriate way to handle that or to message that even even if the complaint was a legitimate complaint, you know, you want to have due process here. And if you're already talking about firing her, you know, it just bright, does bring up a lot of other questions. Yeah. And I think that's why the faculty Senate has been so adamant that they want the school to spell out what exactly the policy is around administrative leave, what would warrant putting someone on that on administrative leave, and how do you ensure that the, that person received due process, um, which I think you know, at the faculty Senate and from faculty we spoke to, the concern was the perception from these text messages that um, she was guilty and needed to prove her innocence rather than the other way around. Right. And I think there is a similar question of like specificity to be asked about the McElroy case as well, because John Sharp comes out here and says, you know, mistakes were made. He apologizes to McElroy. They're not being very specific about what those mistakes they think were actually made. Was it a mistake in the vetting process? Was it a mistake in allowing, you know, conservative forces that are to raise concern about this and to influence the offer that was made? I think there are a lot of questions now about, you know, hiring a journalism professor or, you know, maybe even a future history professor or a future, uh, you know, communication professor or, or, or any other kind of job about, what kind of scrutiny is this hire going to get? Am I going to um, face heat from the university president or the regents for making this hire? Um, or even, you know, if I'm a professor giving a lecture, am I going to be get paid on a, put on paid administrative leave? Is my job going to be at risk if the lieutenant governor or someone else comes and complains about this? It's not just the outcome that matters. It's the process that you went through and the message that that sends and the possible chilling effect it might have the next time someone wants to, 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 to share their professional opinion on something or make a hire of someone, you know, from a background that, that certain people of political stripes might object to. I think that's what's happening now, right? I mean, that, that is the concern. I mean, we've seen, we've seen people talking about professors who now are scared to, you know, talk about, um, issues in which they have expertise. I mean, I saw a comment from someone, a fellow reporter saying they try to interview someone over there about the topic of immigration. And that professor said, you know, I think I'd rather not. I I don't want to get in trouble. And that's what you don't want to see. That's the whole point of academic freedom. And listen, I mean, let's, let's just say that perhaps Professor Alonzo did say something objectionable, but it is clear from the investigations that there is no substantiation that she said these things that she's alleged to have said. Um, But 
if she said something, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, that is opposite of uh, Lieutenant Governor Patrick's policies um, because of her expertise and in her ex- expert opinion, um, that is harming the a fight against opioid overdoses. Uh, should she not be allowed to say that? Or in the case of Kathleen McElroy, who, um, you know, focuses on uh, diversity initiatives in newsrooms and how to uh, cover uh, diverse communities. Um, perhaps some people in the legislature, it's clear, um, they, they, they don't like that and they don't like focusing on that. But should they be punished for that? Like that is their expertise. And I think that is what we're talking about here. That is the chilling effect that you're referring to. And we I think we're already seeing. All right, let's pause for a minute and hear from our sponsors. Find affordable health care coverage through Texas Farm Bureau Health Plans. For more information or to get a quote, go to www.tfbhealthplans.com or call 877-500-0140. And at BNSF, our commitment to community doesn't stop at the tracks. In 2022, the BNSF Railway Foundation contributed $1.9 million to support Texas communities. BNSF.com. Okay, Kate, I want to talk a little bit more about the climate that this happened in, because what we saw from these this reaction to Kathleen McElroy was a lot of conversation. You know, AM released text messages among regents, they released text messages and other kind of messages and emails uh, among top administrators, some of whom Kathy Banks. Um, the, the, the interim dean um, um, of, of, uh, of liberal arts, of, of arts and sciences, who have both resigned from those posts, posts since then. But you saw in some of those conversations a lot of concern, particularly around the idea of DEI, right? And of course, we had this legislative session in which the, the legislature passed a measure kind of banning DEI practices, DEI departments within universities. And there was some kind of alarm being raised that, you know, Kathleen McElroy had been asked or had had spent some time, you know, on some committees doing some work for the university around diversity initiatives. She was not hired to do that. She was hired to lead a journalism program. And she clearly has a lot of, you know, credible experience within journalism working not just at the New York Times, but at, at, at papers, you know, all across the country. And it seemed to me that there was a fear that just her past association or, or advocacy for, you know, supporting journalists of color or students of color was viewed by some as potentially disqualifying and, uh, you know, or a reason that this could create a problem, you know, among, you know, the, the politicians in this state or the, the, you know, politically appointed board of regents in this state. It, it seems to me like what we see here is some fear and concern going beyond, far beyond even what the official policy and, and laws of this state say. Yeah, I mean, I think that was some of the concern that we heard throughout, you know, the legislative session when these bills around DEI were being considered, um, that this was kind of creating like a scarlet letter of sorts uh, of people who were working in this um, 
in this area of DEI and has, you know, which has now been oversimplified and mischaracterized as being kind of this um, area of proposed, like, pushing a, a certain ideology onto students rather than maybe some of the work they're doing in other ways to, you know, build a more diverse and, you know, inclusive campus where stu- all students might be able to be successful. Um, you know, obviously where you fall in the political spectrum kind of depends on how you you view what DEI is these days. Um, but I think, you know, the text messages among the regions made it very clear that um, many of them kind of saw the work that was being done either with the journalism program and with kind of the changes that Banks um, was trying to make at AM overall as kind of a pushback to that and kind of to create a climate within higher ed or within A&M that was more um, accepting and open to like conservative voices on campus. You know, one of the regions mentioned that, you know, that they wanted that the whole point of the journalism program was to bring these high quality Aggie journalists with conservative values into the market. And, you know, that even saying that some of the changes to combine arts and sciences with um, you know, geosciences and, and the other schools was to kind of tamp down on some of the liberal perspectives that some of these other professors had um, at AM. So I think that is kind of the tension that we're we're kind of seeing right now is this push to kind of uh, correct this per- perception of like a, a left-leaning university and higher education system. And um, this was kind of an attempt to, to redirect this and with, you know, which is also, you know, DEI has also been included in that. Okay, James, let me play the uh, the kind of advocate for the other side on this topic, right? It is not an unreasonable thing to say that universities in Texas and elsewhere are very liberal climates, right? Um, it's not unreasonable to say that faculties seem to be liberal leaning. Um, obviously you can't paint with a broad brush and say every single person. Um, but, but I think it's fair to say that, that, that most university faculties, at least in the flagship schools in Texas are, are, are likely more liberal leaning and that universities could benefit from more kind of diversity of thought and perspectives. And that there is a concern among, you know, conservative students and even conservative pres. Uh, uh, professors of of being shouted down or you know silenced or or having you know certain views held against them um, in in higher education. So why is this not a defendable position for the board of regents to be to be to be you know advocating for some of these things? Well, I think you're right. I mean, I think academia certainly would benefit from more conservative voices. Um, and that's, I think that's a pretty well-documented thing that m- most most academics are probably more liberal leaning. Yeah. Um, but the problem with that is like, there's nothing wrong with what you just said, and there's nothing wrong with pursuing that goal. Um, what, what, what is wrong here is that that's not what they did. They hired Kathleen McElroy. They offered her the position. They gave her a tenured position. And then because there was uh, uproar from conservatives who didn't like her previous work, thought she was too liberal, whatever the case may may be, thought she was a, a you know, and and rightly thought that she was a you know a person who is invested in diversity. 
they they pulled the rug out from under her. Like that is what happened. There's nothing wrong with the you know the the pursuit that they were trying to do, except that they that's not what they did. The person they hired was not that person. Um, so then the problem comes when you get this uproar from outside forces, from small but very loud voices, um, and then you've got to. And then you basically rescind the contract. <laughs> You've done, I think that's where the issue is. Like that's that's the problem and the reasons for why they why they did those things. So that is the issue. It's not so much the pursuit of, you know, you know, getting more conservative voices in journalism. Like that's that's fine. I think, you know, but the issue is what happened with after after the uproar. Uh, yeah, and I would also question whether Regents and other folks had enough information about Kathleen McElroy to make the determination that she couldn't be supportive of a conservative young journalist, right? Like, could she not, um, you know, because of her background, because of her race, is there anything to suggest that she couldn't be a great mentor to a journalist who might be conservative and wants to do that. I would, I would argue, no. I mean, basically what, what was being done to, to make the judgment on her was her resume and, you know, one or two quotes she gave that were pretty vague quotes um, about, you know, the idea of diversity and the idea of kind of what perspectives get represented in journalism and things like that. Right. I mean, the, the people who opposed her prejudged her and said she couldn't do the job based on little information and and based but, on like a google search literally right but the issue is too like whatever people are going to complain about everything you know when you're when you guys get a, eventually get a new football coach you know people are going to be mad about that football coach or whatever right but people are always going to yell it it's the system and the university's job to defend their position and to um <clears throat> to make sure that you know the offer that they've made and the handshake that they've done and like, that that is intact and that people feel like that'll be intact and won't be affected by criticism. The, the issue is that the criticism led them to, you know, go back on their word and, and sully their handshake. Like th- that is the issue. And I would even say that that relates to the Alonzo situation. Like when you're running a university and with that claims to uphold academic freedom, the whole point of academic freedom is that a professor is able to talk about their research, their expertise, what they're learning in the field, policies that are happening at a state or federal level with a freedom that they are not going to be, that political leaders are not going to intervene in what they are saying or researching. And a leader of a university or a system like John Sharp um, should know that. And when he gets a call from Dan Patrick, be able to explain that, you know, yes, you might not like what she said, but she has a First Amendment right to say it and a right to say it within academic freedom, which our university upholds. And in some ways, allowing this kind of investigation to happen also rescinded on the kind of handshake of academic freedom that this whole entire university system is working under. So I think they both kind of relate in the way in which they've walked back the the promises that these schools are working under and one more point to make off piggybacking off kate's thought there is that like and we covered this in the initial story on alonzo but it is the stakes are so much higher uh for professors who work in public health like they are going to take positions um inevitably that will not be aligned with 
where Texas and that doesn't just it's not just Texas or where other states are. You know, other states also don't allow syringe exchange programs. Other states also don't allow fentanyl test strips. They're criminalized. Their position is these tools actually help people not die of overdoses and not die when using drugs so that we can get them the help. And just one like, you know, very good example. Joy Alonzo is a leader in the state of providing naloxone, Narcan, uh, to communities, to police departments, to schools, training people on how to use Narcan and naloxone. I've interviewed her before for a story about that. And because of her and people like her, the state has finally budged and devoted $18 million to providing naloxone to communities that need it. And that is a position where experts were saying the state is not right on this. The state needs to provide these things. Joy Alonzo was one of those voices that led to the change that happened this session. And this is a situation in which she's saying something like the policies are wrong. The policies are not helping us. The policies need to change. There are people who uh, are opposing these policies. And because she did that, she got in trouble like that is. And, and so there are real life consequences to this. Kate, what do you what about the consequences to the university? How do you see this playing out? What are you hearing from professors about, you know, is this going to have a long term impact on, you know, not just academic freedom, but the reputation of the school, the ability to recruit faculty, the 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 things that uh, you know, universities are, are always kind of worried about. Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to have a huge impact. Like, you know, we heard a lot about these concerns in this legislative session when DEI and tenure were on the chopping block and um, professors were kind of making noise about the, you know, ability to recruit and retain talented faculty who, who would want to stay here if they're, you know, they weren't able to get tenure or if they weren't able to, um, you know, or if, you know, diversity was not going to be a priority and students as well. And I think that these two situations are kind of that concern come to life, um, you know, and in also kind of um, more uh, less concrete ways that with the Alonzo case in particular, you know, I, it, it creates this chilling effect that goes beyond, you know, whether or not you can have tenure or not. It's about your speech and what you say and how it's how it might be misconstrued and how you might be forced on the defensive um, to try and prove that a maybe you didn't say that at all or that's not what you meant um, and why would someone who is working in a different state where they have um, the backing of their university that supports academic freedom, why would they come here or why would they stay if they could go somewhere else where they could feel more protected? You know, I, I think that the faculty in particular and the reason the faculty Senate has been so vocal is that there is a real concern about the reputation hit that AM has taken. And there is, you know, a lot of damage control to kind of do to prove to future Aggies and future faculty who might want to come here, that this is a place where, you know, the tenets of what American higher education is all about are still supported and, and can kind of thrive. And I'll add one more thing, Matthew, because uh, I know you guys are both higher ed and former higher ed reporters, but we're talking about A&M here because both of these stories happen at A&M. But the reality is that the issue is a broader issue to Kate's point about every school in Texas, like, because we, you know, I, I've covered 
uh, the harm reduction, um, you know, harm reduction experts and, and, and the opioid uh, epidemic. So I'm in, in conversation with a lot of people who deal in these spaces. And they've told us that there are other professors who are scared to talk about these policies because of this reaction and are trying to get advice on how they can discuss these policies uh, without getting in trouble. So we're talking about A&M, but it just so happened to be at A&M. It could have been at UT, it could have been at University of North Texas, could have been at UTEP, it could have been anywhere. Um, and that's the real issue. Are we creating this climate, not just at A&M, but in every Texas public university, where if someone says something um, that uh, is unflattering towards one of our top state officials, those state officials can hop on the phone and call the university president or chancellor and launch an investigation. Well, and I mean, UTMB is is an example of that, right? That is part of the University of Texas system. And they censured Alonzo for, for uh, something that she gave without really any indication that there was much of an investigation in terms of what was said. And I think... And they did not repeat the claim. They, yeah. they, they also didn't, tell, didn't say what the claim was. They were quiet about the whole situation. Um, and even, I mean, the UT system as well. And we know that Kevin Eltife, the chair of the UT board, also got a call from Dan Patrick. Um, so this was, yes, not is- just isolated to A&M. Um, but, you know, also we're talking about the A&M Board of Regents. They oversee 11 universities, public universities in this state. And so I think professors at all of those universities are reading these text messages and um, getting the message of the kind of, you know, positions that the people who essentially, you know, control their university are taking as well. James, are you surprised that this has prompted such a reaction? I mean, when, when we, these stories were in the works and we knew they were coming, I don't think I ever imagined that it would result in the resignation, you know, uh, perhaps under pressure of the A&M university president, that there would be these you know, big document dumps and, and investigations by the A&M system. I mean, Dan Patrick felt the need to respond to this. He wrote an op-ed in the Houston Chronicle sort of defending his decision in this. Don Buckingham, uh, you know, has has had, you know, felt the need to speak out to this. It does feel like this has resonated in a way. I wonder what the impact of that will be and if there might be some more hesitation on on the other side of this to, to push some of these things? Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know. I didn't have anything to do with the Kathleen McElroy. So, I, <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's all Kate. And, and I don't know if she expected all that has happened, but obviously it was a very big story um, about outside influences in the university. I think with the reaction that the Joy Alonzo story has gotten, um, you know, Dan Patrick and Don Buckingham's have sort of extended the you know the legs of the story by responding um and am i surprised i think so because we gave them i mean we gave them weeks notice that we were working on this to be up front with us and send us a statement tell things from their perspective they could have done that and they chose not to um once the story hit i think it speaks to how much it's resonated and how I mean, how bad everyone looks here, except Professor Alonzo, honestly, uh, you know, 
Chancellor Sharp doesn't look well. He looks like he's sort of rolled over to this political interference from Dan Patrick. Don Buckingham doesn't look well. Uh, Lieutenant Governor Patrick doesn't look well. I mean, everyone just looks looks bad. I mean, it could have just ended. It could have just said, I didn't like that comment. And 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 Chancellor Sharp could have said, hey, you know, too bad. Like, that's you know, that's how these things go. But it didn't. It snowballed. And so I, I, I do think that it's resonated with the public. And even even an average person understands maybe they're not talking about it in academic freedom terms, quote unquote, but they understand that a professor should be able to say things in a lecture that may be controversial, but that they have expert um, authority on. And so I think that that's why it's resonated. But I have been surprised at, you know, um, Lieutenant Governor Patrick and Land Commissioner Buckingham, how much they've commented on it afterwards. And I think it also speaks to maybe there's some pressure on them. I did see some comments from people saying, I, you know, I voted, for, <laughs> I voted for you guys. I'm a Republican, but I don't like this. And so I think they are getting pressure even from Republican voters. All right. Kate, uh, I, I was going to add the on the McElroy story. I th- I was did not expect a resignation to come out of this, but I think you know the statement and not to place all of it on the this the decision of Hart Blanton, the department chair, to release that statement after the fact, um, saying you know basically accusing Banks of lying to the faculty senate. I think that and the the documents that he, you know, apparently handed over to the Office of General Counsel, I think that changed the game a little bit, that there were documents out there that were clearly countering um, the claims she had made publicly. And um, saying that race was a factor in that, I yeah. would say, as well. Yes, correct. Um, so I think that statement really um, escalated things. And, you know, someone like which goes back to, you know, something that Sharp, uh, sorry, didn't mean to call you Sharp, James, something like James said prior <laughs> um, about, you know, the the high stakes, you know, Alonzo did not have tenure. And um, that was one of the kind of characteristics or issues with that about how easily it could have been to terminate her. Um, someone like Hart Blanton does have tenure and does have those protections to be able to speak up and say something. And I think that um, might have not been, you know, the final straw, but it did make a difference in terms of how the university started and the, the, the Office of General Counsel started to respond to, you know, how that situation was unfolding. Right. Well, Kate, you've done some fantastic reporting on this, as have you, James. Uh, thank you both for that reporting and thank you for joining us on this. Thank you also to our producer, Todd, and thank you to our sponsors, Texas Association of Community Colleges, Texas Biomed, the Texas Farm Bureau, and BNSF Railway. We'll talk to you next week.